Hello, I'm Sufyan. Welcome to Inclusion Europe Radio. In this series of conversations, we hear about topics that matter to people with intellectual disability and their families. Milan and I have conversations with our guests to help us and you learn new things and understand better how to improve the lives of people with intellectual disability and families. Today we have with us Katarina Ivankovic Kinetsevic. Katarina is the Director for Social Rights and Inclusion at the Directorate General for Employment, Social Affairs and Inclusion of the European Commission. Katarina joined the European Commission three and a half years ago. Before that, Katarina worked for the government of Croatia. In Croatia, she had various job roles around social policy, European Union funding, gender equality and other topics. Katarina talks about what the European Union is doing to improve the lives of people with intellectual disability and their families, about how more people with disabilities can get a job, about how to help children who live in poverty, about what the EU plans to do for family carers. Hello and welcome to Inclusion Europe Radio. Ambitions. Rights. Belonging. Good morning, everybody. My name is Sufiana Lamrani. I'm here with Milan, the Director of Inclusion Europe, and we have a special guest on our podcast today. I'd like to welcome Katarina. Welcome to Inclusion Europe Radio. Thank you very much and good morning to all who are listening. You came to your role at the European Commission with a lot of experience from national government, from the other side of EU policy, so to speak. Can we talk a bit about what your relation to EU policy then? Well, you want to speak about my past life, I guess. It's true, I've been in the European Commission for three and a half years, although sometimes it seems like I've been here forever. And, and in the past, before I came to Brussels, I was indeed part of Croatian administration for more than 20 years. And for all those 20 years, I've been dealing with inclusion, with human rights. And then I moved up to something which was called European funds. And it was in a pre-accession time, so it was pre-accession funds for Croatia. And, and I really, I was, I was there from the scratches, practically, uh, so co-creating uh, the whole system of the use of the EU funds. But I think what, what is even more relevant is that I was uh, part of the negotiating team of the Croatian accession. And I was a member of two teams of the, the chapter 19, which is the social policy, employment and inclusion, and also regional policy and development and EU funds. So in a way, I combined two of my roles uh, at the same time. So I could, I could in a way say that I've seen the commission from the other side, from the from the outside worked very closely. I remember my first, I still remember my first time I visited Brussels in 1999 and, and the impressive European quarter, if I could, <laughs> I could say, which hasn't changed much in, in the <laughs> past uh, X, Y years, but it was, it was really 
somehow my whole career was leading in a way. That's why we're asking about it, about about your previous work and this viewing the EU policy area and disability issues to which we'll get soon from the national perspective. So what do you think helps the EU policy to be successful at national level? It's a very relevant question, Milan, and it's very important, very important question as well. I believe what I can speak from my experience is the fact that EU policies are most of the time, if not always, few steps ahead what what national policies are. And member states look into the EU policies, well, let's, let's focus on the social policies, as really a guidance, as really a compass how to develop, how to revise, how to adjust their national policies so that they would be in, first of all, compatible, but also in alliance and lead towards the overall objectives. I, I believe we can see that the good example could be maybe the Lisbon agenda and the whole the approach, how the member states adjusted to those specific Lisbon targets and how to reach the Lisbon targets, even though if some of the targets were not reached, but still, you know, the path matters. I think this is extremely well visible when it comes to the disability rights and the momentum that EU has adopted the first 10-year strategy, which was now already 12 years ago or 11-12 years ago, was, I think, a turning point also for the national administrations, but not only the administrations, I would say the whole disability community, if we can call it uh, in such a words, because they finally had a strategic document which had more or less clear idea where we wanted to take the EU in 10 years time. And I think with this disability strategy, we still call it new, although it's already one year and a month old. But I think in, in, in the last disability rights strategy, it is really visible. I, I think this vision-oriented approach is even more visible than yeah. in, in a previous one because it really gives this time span and it gives also the way, the tools and the, the, the principles to be followed in order to, to achieve to actually what we want to achieve in the, in the disability area. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think that's, that's going partly to, to the question about what makes the EU policy, let's say, more probable to be implemented at national level or, or to, to go in the direction, as you said, harmonization and, and making progress on social issues. I think that the new disability strategy is a good example and that, in my view, it's more specific than the, the previous one. It's more targeted as a clear kind of the flagship initiatives and the things that, that are there. There's a clear time frame for these things. We'll, we'll get to that. But I wanted to go back to what you said about the EU quota not changing much since your first visit. I think it may have not changed much in its architectural outlook, but I think it changed a lot in, in how much the social policy is present in these discussions around this quarter, how much disability 
rights are discussed. And one more significant example of this would be the social pillar. There's definitely. a definitely. definitive example of how much more prominent compared to previous times, the social policy, quality of life, people with disabilities and without disabilities, social pillars much have become at EU level. One of the most important social policy documents at EU level is the social pillar, full name the European Pillar of Social Right. And what is it and why did the EU thought it was important to come up with it? I think this is this is very important that we when we discuss and when we reflect on the on the pillar, it's super good to have it and to have it all the time. Also, let me let me really use this opportunity to thank you, Inclusion Europe, because you have done easy to read version of the European Pillar of Social Rights. And it's it's also maybe for someone small, but for me, really big milestone. What is what I meant that not not much has changed really in terms of architecture and how it looks like. But indeed, lots has changed and a lot has changed in, in the past 10 to 15 years. But every time when I read the Eurobarometer results, and you know the Eurobarometer is the survey of how citizens feel about different aspects of of, uh, life and uh, different aspects of EU policies, then what is always prominent is that people care about the way they live. They care a lot about inclusion. They care a lot about their workplaces. They care a lot about services and that services are in place. Education, of course, green and digital and all these important initiatives are mentioned, but people really care how, with whom, where they live. And this this really puts social policy and social inclusion at the forefront of the policies. I think that was recognized in 2017 because if you remember before 2017 we had impacts of the first financial crisis that hit in 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 2008 and then was somehow dealt in the with in the years to to come but it was visible that besides all these macro simulations policies data discussions imbalances procedures etc something needs to be done in in the area of social and and in in gothenburg when the european pillar was proclaimed and the world proclamation is is i think something we should learn it means that it was agreed by a consensus with more all important not all but major institutions uh, at eu level including the member states so it was parliament on one side commission and the council representing all the member states there was a presence of the social partners and the civil society when the pillar was proclaimed and the same was done in porto last year when the european pillar of social rights action plan was adopted and endorsed by the state by the heads of state you know the the, the most important people who have highest decision making power and and in the pillar in a very i would say simple and clear manner the guidance was given which are the most important elements in the area of employment, education and social policies that needs to be followed. It was also given in a way that many actions could come out of the pillar 
And we have seen even before the action plan, like the work-life balance directive was adopted as a direct result of the pillar. The directive on transparent and predictable working conditions also is a part of the, you know, the second strand of the pillar and, and many other actions. In the end, our strategy is a part of the pillar action plan and, and many, many other initiatives like a child guarantee, like the care strategy that will be adopted this year, like the minimum income initiative. And indeed, we can speak about many, many initiatives that will come out of the pillar, the minimum wage in the end, the proposal and the directive. And let's keep the fingers crossed that it will be adopted as soon as possible. So it really gives the, gives the good uh, possibility. I think one, one uh, specific aspect needs to be mentioned in the light of the pillar and the action plan. And that is that in Porto, the member states and the commission have agreed that we will work towards some targets. And there are three targets. So it's easy to learn. It's easy to remember those targets. And we somehow, all of our actions are directed towards achieving those targets. So what are those, those uh, three targets? The first is that at least 78% of the people should be employed and the employment rate should be 78% by 2030. We know by now that we have some member states that have already achieved such a target or are even in the figures of 80 plus, but we still have many member states that need to come to the 70, even 70. And the second target is about education. It is about having at least 60% of adult population, uh, a working age population, in some kind of educational activity. So it, it can be training, retraining, continuation of education or some other, some other aspects, but it is extremely ambitious. It is probably going to be quite challenging to achieve it, but you know, in order to have a long-term vision, you need to have a, have a high ambition. And why is it so important that it is a, such an ambitious high, high target to have yes. adult population in, so, in education? When you look at other EU policies, like the green transition and the, the green deal and the digital transition and the challenges that it is posing, and when you look at some other parts of the world that have gone much further and, and are running much faster in terms of both green and digital literacy, if I can put it in such a word, we really need to, to, to step up all the efforts and we really need to step up our upskilling and reskilling and making sure that people have the right skills for the challenges that these transitions are posing to, to, to them. But then when you look at it, it's not only like the, the green and digital transition. Now, when we are preparing like the care strategy, we see that there is a huge demand in the care sector and what employers have communicated to us within the consultation process is that they do not have a sufficient staff with sufficient skills. So there are other fields yeah. that require additional upskilling and reskilling. So in order really to catch up and to have this ambitious agenda of having a well-qualified workforce that is practically almost fully employed, you need to have the elements of skills. 
And for me, uh, being uh, you know a director of social policy, for me, the particular attention should be given to those who do not have sufficient qual qualifications, either none or have a very low qualifications and are low skilled workers and how to help them and how to put them to be a, a, a really part and really being able to compete in the labor yeah. market. The uh, third target is about reducing a number of people living in poverty. And this third target said that by 2030, we need to have a 15 million less in poverty. So 15 million less of people at risk of poverty and social exclusion. We want to lift 15 million people out of the poverty, including 5 million children. And this is very important because for helping to reduce the number of children living in poverty, we have put in place the European Child Guarantee, which is one of the yeah. of the of the most important initiatives that well actually that was the yeah. first one that came out of the European pillar of social we'll, rights. We'll get to the child Just to summarize, as, as you said, the action plan targets for the social pillar are about having a lot of people in employment, having many adults in education throughout the, the whole life essentially, and about reducing power significantly and of course that all three are incredibly important for people with intellectual disabilities and their families. The target for employment for example is 78% of working age population to be in employment. We know that for people with disabilities it's 50%. For people with intellectual disabilities this is basically negligible numbers in the countries that we can find out that's somewhere 3% here or there, then maybe uh, bigger numbers are employed in sheltered workshops or other kinds of not open labor market situation. The same goes for education with a lot of two elements to education. A lot of children mm -hmm. being in segregated schools, a lot of children not having any education at all because they, they are basically left out of any education opportunities. And when it comes to education of adults with intellectual disabilities, I think that the numbers would be even worse looking at that. So that, of course, is a very, very important. And you mm -hmm. said that from the social policy perspective, reaching out to those who are on the most the vulnerable, most, yeah, in <laughs> let's the say in, in the labor market disadvantaged, so let's say um, low levels of education, unemployed, in poverty, and a lot of these things are also are a characteristic common to people with disabilities or their families. Is there anything specifically in the social or in any other policies to target people with disabilities on this Absolutely. and help them participate in, in these policies and benefit. So you will remember that the disability rights strategy or the strategy for the rights of persons with disabilities was, was adopted in March last year. And at that time, we were aware that the action plan is going to have a certain targets. They were still being negotiated and discussed because Porto was in May and, and our strategy was adopted in March. And we reflected also how can we help persons with disabilities? How can we make sure that they would be in line with, with the pillar targets? 
and also how to put it in the strategy so that we have a buying in practically of those who need to implement it, that it's the member states. Because people with disabilities live somewhere, they live in their member states and their local communities, etc. So who, who and how should, should deal with it? And in the strategy, we have introduced two targets that needs to be set by member states. And we did not insist on a short time, like they, they need to be set like tomorrow or within the first year of implementation. But we, we said by 2024, the member states need to set two targets. One is on the employment rate, on employment of persons with disabilities, and how to deal with the gap of persons with and without disabilities. And for support and in order to help member states, we are preparing the employment package for persons with disabilities. It will be practically a process. It will be a joint paper of the disability platform and the commission, but it is about the process and about six areas of, of interventions and six important areas that are relevant for the employment of persons with disabilities. It goes, it, it ranges from the involvement of employers and how to help employers with the reasonable accommodation and with all the additional aspects that are relevant for persons with disabilities prior and during the employment. Mm -hmm. So prior yeah. to the employment and the recruitment processes and during the employment. Then we will reflect on the professional rehabilitation of persons with disabilities, how their remaining workability could be utilized in the best possible manner. We will also link it with active labor market policies and the very important role that either public employment services or other employment services in the member states, depending on how their structure play. We will focus on the occupational health and safety aspects of employed persons with disabilities and we will focus on the outreach, we will focus on engaging all those stakeholders who are relevant for the persons with disabilities. Also we will address the sheltered workshops. We will address it as a pathway towards the open market and this is important to have in mind. We are not going in the direction to reflect that they immediately need to diminish or because we know that there are good and positive examples. But what we want, we really want the transformation from, from the sheltered approach to really the open uh, labor market. So I mentioned already seven or six uh, different, different areas of intervention. It will have that many initiatives. Yeah. So it will be either a, like a guidance on the reasonable accommodation. We have good examples. We have good practices. We have really member states that have done a best in order to help persons with disabilities. With the professional uh, rehabilitation, also we have a good examples, but Sometimes we felt like this was all that in, dealt in a like like a silosis type of, of approach and that we need to bring it together. And uh, we, will, we are not going to bring it together at once, but we will launch the process. And by the time that member states need to set the target, they will have all the elements 
that are relevant for the employment of persons with disabilities so that they can really also say and be a bit more certain and that it does not have to be only the political decision, although it's always political decision and the political will this, that is key behind all these important decisions, and especially setting the targets, but that they have tools in their hands yeah. that they can use in order really to be able to set the target. And the, the second target is on the skills, as I told you. So it's closely linked to the pillar. We have also introduced in very complex called revised social scoreboard, which is a list of indicators that we follow and, and assess with each member state. We have introduced uh, the indicators, uh, all those who can be disaggregated by disability to be, but also these additional elements of employment of persons with, with disabilities as something that needs to be looked, looked into. And we consider this, this to be very important. So, but also the other flagships of the strategy. <laughs> because you know, it's, it's very difficult when you have, when you have not only seven flagships but 64 actions to to yeah. say like which is more relevant or more important because all of them are really really very relevant and very important yeah the persons with disabilities. definitely and we said already at the beginning that that and, and we said it before when when it was published the strategy was published last year that we like what we see in it there's a lot of things that are important to to people with intellectual disabilities and their families reflected in the way that we would that we want them to be reflected so that's definitely uh, a good progress and all the flagships and targets that that you talked about and we'll, we'll do i think separate episode conversation on the disability strategy itself <laughs> so i'll we'll kind of shelve it for now we wanted to focus this one on the yeah, Mila, let me tell you one very important thing that i don't want to forget and that is so these three big targets that I told you are set at the EU level, but what member states are doing now and what we are doing together with the member states, we are in the process of discussing with member states on the national targets. So we have bilateral meetings with each member states. I think I had by now 20, 25 different bilaterals because my colleague Barbara Kaufman, she on behalf of Employment Committee and the Social Protection Committee. So Barbara reflects on the targets relevant for employment and skills, and I reflect on the poverty target together with our colleagues. And it's been such a rewarding process, if I can say. When we see, you know, after two years of being locked down in a COVID, after not seeing member states, after not seeing the colleagues, when you discuss, when you reflect, even, even if sometimes we have a, a, different opinion or different ideas what certain member states should could uh, might uh, do it still helps in order to clarify the understanding and what is happening in each member states what is happening on the ground to understand the, the specificities and then you really see you know the europe in its essence so i i hope that by let's say june the mid uh, mid-year all the member states will set their national targets and I think this is very different than the Lisbon strategy, where we didn't have this process of member states in a way committing, but committing to their own citizens and to their own people 
that they will reach a certain yeah. targets. Plus, it's it's quite rare to see the the long term planning because it's now now they have one government and by 2030 they might have the third <laughs> or or fourth or uh, 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 whichever but it's yeah. it's really important to recognize this momentum and the role that that member states play which is in a social policy where practically the competencies are mostly if not if not definitely, fully that's, definitely. that's the, why we started this conversation level. by asking about your experience working at yeah. national level because i i believe what you just said it's the in, in social policy especially we working in brussels i think sometimes forget where most of it happens and <laughs> it happens at national level and that, so it is very important what you are saying that there will be like country-specific targets to implement the social policies related to the social pillar. I also want to just go back to what you said previously about countries and the work they done, for example, on employment with the... And you said that they have examples and they have many successful practices and policies and, and programs in, in, in different countries. And we definitely share that it's actually one of our kind of founding blocks of, of the Inclusion Europe strategy for the next couple of years. We believe that there's been a lot of progress achieved on a lot of the issues that are dear to us. And that means that we know how things should be done. We know, and, and countries know that, there are many on employment, on education, on the institutes, and many other things. So the important thing is to help them, help more people, not just to invent everything, invented the wheel but but to help people to benefit from the from what we know that it that works may work in one region within a country so how do we help it spread to other regions it may work in one country so how do we help to benefit people in other countries if we know that is a good good thing to do so i think that was just one important element well i can also i can also give you a very practical example on how that worked in in, in croatia so when when the strategy the first strategy was was out and it was it was practically at the time of also the, the UNCRPD the whole development around around UNCRPD and it was it was in Croatia in the area of of social policy in relation to disability there were there were really like baby steps initiatives in terms of for example the institutionalization or in terms of introduction of the personal assistance for persons with disabilities. And first of all, it was, it was a new, it was a quite new approach that was highlighted within the strategy, even in, in a way that did not have concrete actions, but as a principle, it was, it was very much prominent and the whole Article 19 reflection and the colleagues from the area of the social policy within something which was called Joint Inclusion Memorandum, which was a process in the pre-accession and where Croatia had to adapt their social policy with EU-level social policies. So they needed to be somehow aligned, let's say. And in this Joint Inclusion Memorandum, the, the independent living which was not called independent living but the institutionalization at, at that time was addressed 
And it was for the first time that the colleagues and the civil society in particular have come up with concrete policy measures. Previously, it was done at the level of the practically civil society in a very sporadical manner, depending on the various factors. And the, 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 the biggest factor is funding and prioritizing the funding over certain policies. And in order to address it, they have come to me because I was at that time the head of managing authority for, for pre-accession, pre-accession fund. And then it happened uh, for the ESF in, since 2014. And they came to me and saying, okay, so there is this policy. Can we use EU funding to fund the, the system of the deinstitutionalization and the personal assistance? Then we did, the, 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 first of all, the assessment of what do we have in Croatia. And I believe it was quite similar in the other member states, even if they were member states, but did not have systems in place. Then you see how complex it is. Then you see how difficult it would be to change, first of all, the understanding why DI is important. What do you do with the people when you they institutionalize them, which support do they need to get, what is community-based living, what is home-based care, what, what, are, what is the role of supporting staff and supporting services for the persons with disabilities and how do you make it work, work and how do you pay. Then with the small pilots like 2 million euro, which at that time seemed incredibly huge amount of funding for me. We started in Croatia to introduce slowly, first of all, the process of the DI, where all the, not all, but most of the, of the residential institutions should have been dealt with, discovering, you know, the development of DI plans, the involvement of the, all the relevant stakeholders, and then trying to freely put it into the independent living principles. And also the, the other parallel process was the development of the personal assistance scheme. And in, the, in that process, you realize that in order to be successful, you need to have a solid legal base. You need to have the solid understanding who and why should get personal assistance, how they could be organized, who is the best position to identify them, who could be the personal assistant. And then, you know, in the end, when I left Croatia from like having maybe 500 persons with disabilities supported with a personal assistant, like in 2010, 11, the number has increased to thousands and, and more than 10,000 people within that period that received the support. But what always bothered me was that it was done on the project basis. And the project base does not really work. You need to put the system in place and you need to have it as practically the right of persons with disabilities to have the access to these services, which for the member states has many, opens many issues, including the most no matter how much we don't like to speak about it, but it's about the money and who and how is going to finance. And I'm really happy now that Croats are 
in the final phase of the adoption of, of the law on the personal assistance because this will give the needed clarity and this will give the, the right for the persons with disabilities to really have a, such a support and this is really one of the best ways towards the independent living but i know that many other member states then when i came in in, in brussels i learned how many member states do not have such a systems in place or are still lacking this uh, it doesn't have to be a law it could be a different a different binding or non-binding documents and and a base for for introducing such a system sometimes i wonder if there wasn't eu funding would it ever be done to be very frank because when you have and especially then when you have a when the time of crisis comes, uh, uh, when you need to reallocate funding and, and it's so easy to slip the focus and we always need to center to centered everyone to what is important and what is relevant. And I believe the, the initiative from the strategy, which goes both in, in providing a guidance towards the member states, how to deal with independent living and how to deal with the... the, the for example, personal assistance, but also how to make sure that there is there are quality services put in place is going to help to in, in, in the right direction towards towards really making sure that yeah. independent living is a reality. And then you also learn something which is not something we really like, that sometimes you need a time. And and it's very difficult for someone who is in the position that needs assistance right now and right at this stage to say okay the time will pass but you know there will be something in two or three or five or ten years time but this is this is i believe what uh, when i look at it now the this process from really having a project-based approach towards strategic and concrete policy measure it's 12 years so sometimes, sometimes we really need to factor these elements into, into our actions, but this, this doesn't mean that we must not start working now. Yeah, definitely. And I think you, you again des described one is the role of the European Union and more specifically EU funding in promoting the institutionalization and establishing it as, it as well, at least something that the countries have to deal with one way or another and some of them dealing with it in much more substantive basis than others but definitely something that that was established with a strong role of the european union and the work being done here in brussels i think that's an it's a good example of how eu social policy has a direct impact on on Absolutely. Not not only on national policy, but actually on the lives of people Absolutely. directly, because there are thousands of people who, thanks to the funding and the, the policy-related discussions, let's say, have benefited from this and have moved from segregated institutions to to housing and, and living in the community. So Absolutely. that's a, one incredibly important element. And the other is what you, you referred to a couple of times now, is moving from doing things by pilots and projects to a more structured 
systemic mm-hmm. strategic approach mm-hmm. and i think there needs to be much more work on that and in most respects something that that preoccupies as well i will refer <laughs> listeners here to our previous episode because that was something that julie beetle brown and jan shishka talk exactly and in our previous conversation about these issues how to the need to move on from piloting and doing things by projects to a strategic systemic approach. So I'll just plug that previous episode you can find on Inclusion Europe Radio. And Sufia, let's move on to, to another topic on, on child guarantees so you can find the relevant bit. Yep. Moving on, another important EU initiative is the child guarantee. It is about tackling child poverty. One-fifth of children in the EU live in poverty or social exclusion. What is the child guarantee and how does it help with child poverty? Well, the child guarantee is, I would say, the most important document when it comes to children and when it comes to to reducing poverty of children in Europe. It goes hand in hand with the children's rights strategy. They were adopted at the same day. Also last year, we just had a, we just celebrated the first year of the child guarantee and, and the children's rights strategy. But why it is important is because it puts children in need in the focus. And uh, who are the children in need as defined per, per the child guarantee recommendation? These are children who live at risk of poverty and social exclusion but also have some other characteristics. Either if they are uh, uh, of, let's say, Roma origin, or migrants, or homeless children, or children with disabilities. And why did we choose, or children living in precarious households to that fact? Why did we choose these groups? Because we realized that children with, which have these characteristics are suffering from additional disadvantages and they need to be addressed. So when the child guarantee was prepared, we decided to be extremely ambitious. And this extremely ambitious means that we we wanted to ask the member states to secure free access for children in need to certain services. And in the end we succeeded because when the child guarantee was adopted in June last year, it has these important elements which means that the member states have recognized the importance of and and the willingness to make sure that there is a free access uh, uh, to certain services and this especially for those children that i mentioned so this free access needs to be to ECEC, so early child care education and care so the pre the whole preschool system it needs to be free for education And it needs to be also inclusive. Inclusive, which means that children with disabilities should be involved, should be enrolled in, let's say, mainstream schools. And why do we think so? Because we truly believe that integration is the key element. And integration should start from age zero until, until the old age, but it's especially relevant for little children. We agreed with member states that the free access should be to healthcare, 
to at least one healthy meal per day because unfortunately still in 2022 we do have some children who do not have the access to one meal warm meal not to speak healthy warm meal per day and we also agreed that children should have a so-called effective access so practically access to uh, uh, nutrition and the healthy nutrition and the housing and these are these are the elements that we have asked member states and that they have committed to uh, achieving these aspects for the children with disabilities in this recommendation besides making sure that they can be enrolled in the kindergartens and schools we ask for additional elements to be followed so that the schools and the teaching material and that teachers should be adapted to children with disabilities not children with disabilities to the environment and this is very important because it goes from the architectural barriers to learning methods to the the the, the all the different aspects either books or adjusted equipment needs to be put in place and also we ask for the system of an assistance to the children with disabilities in the education to be developed and this is also this is also very important to have in mind and in the area of health we also have emphasized the specific specificities for the children with disabilities in in this respect so what is happening with the child guarantee now i believe our listeners might be interesting in that interested in that so after the adoption, the member states have appointed the child guarantee coordinators. And so we have 27 child guarantee coordinators. We meet very regularly with them since like uh, last autumn, we met six or seven times. And we have been guiding uh, the child guarantee coordinators towards the preparation of the action plans. And in these action plans, the member states say like, how do they identify which children with uh, need uh, should be a part of the child guarantee which actions should be put in place specific actions and measures which funding is going to be allocated because we know that european social fund plus has some earmarked money for a child guarantee for for certain member states and then we also ask how are they going to follow up and which indicators are they going to use. We also ask for this 2030 approach because this is in line with those targets that I was, I was telling you about before. And uh, till today, we have five final action plans uh, submitted. The deadline was 15th of March. And we have four uh, action plans where the member states have asked us commission to undertake the previous assessment of these action plans. So if can I be happy? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure because I was hoping that by now, which is the mid April or almost towards the end of April, that we would have more action plans put in place. But I have to say, we also have to recognize the momentum that we are living in and especially those member states who are bordering with Ukraine, we see that the majority of refugees uh, are women and children. And the member states that are closely involved have asked us for additional time 
to reflect also on this very specific aspect, how to deal with, with Ukrainian children and how to help Ukrainian children and how to use the child guarantee really as the main tool and the main guiding tool in, in addressing also the Ukrainian children. We had held two specific meetings with the coordinators. One was yesterday, where we discussed also on these specific systems of children fleeing from out of the figures, which, uh, which are very high uh, number of children in different member states. Quite high percentage of children are children with disabilities. There is a high number of children with disabilities still in Ukraine high number of children and persons with disabilities still in various institutions living in Ukraine. And this is also something that we are very concerned about and, and very concerned also in order to make sure that once they reach EU territory, they have all the support that they needed. Next week, we will have a discussion with the civil society on, in, in the disability platform and the member states and the civil society on, only on this specific topic to reflect what the member states are doing, which kind of help and support do they still need, and also to see from the experience of the civil society who has been first on the ground and, and helping the Ukrainian refugees how to deal with it. So, in a way, I am... To come back to the action plans, I am happy that that we received uh, so nine solid either final versions or drafts, but I would be happy when we will have 27 action plans and, and I'm strongly advocating to all of you who have a voice that could be heard in your member states to really speak up and ask for the action plans to be developed as soon as possible. Which, which basically gives me a perfect opportunity to ask the question I wanted to ask. So from the point of view of national disability organizations, how can they work with the child guarantee? What, 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 they, what, what, yeah, they, what is the mechanism for them, let's say, to advocate for a proper good inclusion of children with disabilities in the child guarantee in the specific countries. So what would be your mm-hmm. sort of advice to the national disability organizations to use this important new tool well, I hope opportunity? That they, I hope that they have been involved in the preparation of the action plans because that's what we ask the member states. That's what is part of the of the recommendation and we say that civil society needs to be consulted during the preparation phase, implementation and monitoring, because this is crucial. This is also very important to to be involved in all of these three elements. And uh, from those action plans that we have received, you can also take a look uh, at our website, DGMPL. There are five of those final reports. There are elements that are really well describing how the civil society will be involved and how are they going to follow up. But for those that have that still have not submitted, and so the remaining out, <laughs> the remaining twenty three. If you haven't been involved, then please really find a way how to to be involved either through your. Well, in all member states, we have umbrella associations, one or two or three or as many as, as member states have that co- should be consulted on this important topic. 
the children with disability have a, such a prominent place in the in the child guarantee recommendation that it's difficult for me even to imagine that someone would not address this issue and that someone would opt for maybe another option or say that different groups of children in need are a priority or whatsoever. So this is, this is something that I do not expect to happen in many or any member state. And then please really be very alerted that this process is ongoing. And it's also maybe important for you to have in mind that it's not only this process ongoing, it's also the process of finalizing the operational programs for European funds in the social area, so the European Social Fund Plus, but also the Regional Development Fund, which is important for the infrastructure and all the, 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 the important topics, especially when it comes to the DEI, to the education, to the, to the social housing, to different elements that are relevant for persons with disability. And, and be loud. I, that's, that's all I, I'm going to say because when I was back in the shoes of the national administration, I was pushed like hell by the civil society. <laughs> we, we speak about it all the time and I would be happy if, if, if the they were here in the discussion because they know what is happening and what is needed on the ground. It's not an easy discussion. Sometimes it's very heavy it's not what you want to hear, but you have to hear it and you have to understand it and you have to assess really what the, where the problems are in order to move forward. And even though what I learned from that process is, you know, even some, sometimes things are painful, you need to do them and you need to be there and present and aware if you want to move forward. And that's, that's definitely something where I see the strong role of the, of the civil society and especially strong role in advocating and putting on the agenda things that maybe are not the most pleasant or things that are of a, a, a nature that require lots of changes. And sometimes we know that people tend to continue the practices just because it has always been done this way, which is, you know, the mother killer of all the progress and reforms. But this is your role. This is your important role to be the voice of those who cannot be the voice of themselves and to really push towards the needed change. Important reminder for our members and other disability organizations in EU countries, there are these now incredibly important processes going on about child guarantee and EU funding that will have an impact on people's lives in the foreseeable future. And if, if it, I believe, of course, that uh, most of the organizations have been involved and let their views uh, be known. I also know that it's uh, difficult in, uh, in many countries. It's difficult for also reasons that, that not every organization of gets the correct recognition everywhere. This is especially true for, let's say, self-advocacy organizations, which mm -hmm. often lack the proper funding and then proper opportunities to be involved. And it may be especially difficult now in the countries that are at the borders with Ukraine and where the disability organizations are dedicating a lot of their time and resources to helping Ukrainian 
refugees with disabilities so it's an added element to their potential to be involved in this. But another an important opportunity and we'll definitely also communicate it. That's one, one more reason why we wanted to do this conversation. Our final topic we'll talk with you is about the EU care strategy. I imagine you can't say many details about it as it is an early stage. But can you tell us why the European Commission thinks this strategy is needed? Well, you are right <laughs> on, on the fact that maybe I cannot tell you many things, but I can, but I can also tell you many things in, in, in a way. The European Care Strategy was announced last year. I would say that the need to have a, such, a, such a strategy was recognized even before the era of COVID. But I think that COVID and everything that it brought has really, first of all, exacerbated all the challenges that the care sector had to have in the past, but also the need to do something at the EU level. And the care strategy, as announced last year, will have these two important elements. One element is the revision of the Barcelona targets. And the Barcelona targets for our listeners are targets on the enrollment of children in the early childcare education and system. So in the, in the kindergartens practically. And the other aspect is long-term care, which is the one that we in DGMPO are dealing with. With the Barcelona targets, it is our colleagues in the Directorate for Justice, but we are working on it together, which is also, I believe, something that has changed with the time in the European Commission and, and breaking the silos and working together is really, this is really a good example of, of the work that we have been putting in place. So what, what has been seen in, in the past uh, years, and especially as a consequence of COVID, is that care systems have, I would say, twofold challenges. One is that care needs to be secured for those who need care. So the children, the persons with disabilities, elderlies, etc. And the other aspect is those who are providing care so the care workforce and then we looked into the potential that the care economy as we call it or the silver care economy for the long-term care and for the for the elderly has and the opportunities and we have seen some joint patterns when it comes to child care and long-term care we have seen that there is, you know, the question of availability, of affordability, so who can afford it, how, the, the, the territorial disparities and the territorial challenges. We have seen that demographic challenges have such, play such a big role in our member states because you have some areas being fully depopulated, people migrating either towards uh, the cities or bigger cities or municipalities and leaving the rural area practically empty, which means that the services move away as well because there are no people being left and, and, and no one to take care of them. Then we have seen also that there are 
challenges when it comes to the social protection angle in the in the relation to long-term care so do we put the long-term care as the social protection right that is a part of the social protection financing and i think this is the biggest challenge and would be the biggest advantage of of our future initiative and then we also wanted wanted to show that there is a really huge potential in terms of the employment but also economic potential when it comes to both uh, both aspects so right now as as you rightly pointed out i cannot go in the details when it comes to the elements of of the communication and the recommendation on the long term care and the barcelona targets but it these are the main elements that that would be addressed in terms of timing we are now in the process of the consultations we had a very good consultations with the uh, with the social partners with the civil society and and with with the committees all the committees that need to be involved and now we move on into something which is called you know the drafting and the hard work that uh, my colleagues have been doing in in putting all these elements together and also showing really this this future oriented vision and and as highest level of ambition as it would be possible in order really to put the care challenges in a more prominent i would say place than they were before we are not going to touch upon much on just just for the record we are we are the main focus is in the child care and long term care we will reflect a bit on the integrated approach towards towards the the healthcare and the long term care but our colleagues in the healthcare they have so many strategic documents of their own and and we saw the gap actually in the in the long term care as the one that needs to be addressed like in the, in the more comprehensive and holistic manner we of course have to talk also about ukraine and the russian war in ukraine and what it does to people with intellectual disability uh, with disabilities in, in general and, and their families most of the focus for us at inclusion europe is to those who cannot leave their homes for various reasons and we are helping them both in telling the world about their situation and by fundraising money so we can support the local organization in supporting the families and people there you can still contribute to the fundraiser on our website if you want but let's talk now about those who left ukraine about refugees you've already talked about those coming to european union countries that border ukraine and a lot a lot of them if not the majority is a lot of them are children with their mothers essentially and a lot of them and i i still believe this is unprecedented in in the history of the eu are people with disabilities as well and we hear quite a lot of criticism from the disability organizations about the role of the state lack of coordination in this respect uh, the role of the humanitarian agencies and and organizations and their response to to this not being disability specific and disability inclusive and we've talked about this on various occasions you can also um, 
listen to a podcast about this about the situation in Poland in the previous conversations on Inclusion Europe radio or find more details on this on the website but let's for the moment focus on the support that is available and what the European Union is doing in this situation well first of all i think we we all should agree that uh, you know the war is such an such a unfortunate situation for everyone involved i remember when the covid started and and many people were saying you know we need to prepare for the future crisis but i i'm not sure that anyone was having the war as a future crisis and in, at the time of war also having lived through the war in the 90s in in croatia I can tell you that the war brings the worst out of people in in so many ugly ways that it's unbelievable and that it takes time to heal and to recover and these are really the worst moments of the, of the human history and for all of those who have been affected by the different wars it's really bringing back all the all the uh, memories and and putting them in a, in a very very difficult situation so what happened i i think at the level of the whole world first uh, a week everyone was in shock at the eu level i can tell you that from the day one all the forces were mobilized in order to see how to, to help and how to address as as uh, the f- i can speak only from from our own let's say ample perspective and a little bit from the perspective of my other colleagues but uh, what was reflected was first let's make sure that everything that is has remained from the eu funding in the member states could be diverged towards addressing the needs of the refugees and that's where the care package was practically announced in the week in the in the first week of, of of war and then adopted in the in the second or third where the member states really were in the situation that if they had any funding remaining from 2014-20 financing period could use it and could swap it between the different funds because uh, sometimes the whole eu funding process is very complex but the simplicity helped a lot it also being very realistic we are very much aware of all the challenges that member states are having in in this respect and and uh, this need to react immediately and and put it in place then for the first time in the history of the eu the temporary protection directive was put in motion which gave the possibility of the for the ukrainian refugees to practically have a, a, a recognized status within the EU with all the belonging rights like the right to access to the services to have certain services available immediately practically or as soon as possible and also to have the right to work those who can and are willing to to work and we have seen the also from from the discussion that we had with with the stakeholders either from the member states of the civil society that the, there is a number of refugees who are really willing and asking to be involved in you know different working arrangements but we st- we see the other who are just not ready 
to be engaged and to be involved and they also need support either the psychological support or the access to to health or and especially access to health is important also when it comes to the persons with disabilities to have access to medicine to have access to to, to the needed equipment that that persons with disabilities need and and this is something that the member states especially the bordering one have been dealing with from the day one I can understand the criticism, but I also can understand that in, at the time, t- time of, of the chaos and uh, of not knowing what the tomorrow will bring, it's very difficult to put in motion immediately some of the elements. But we, what we also try to help member states, so with the TPD, the, the, the Temporary Protection Directive, a solidarity platform was created which is a place where we discuss with the member states on a, on a weekly and even the colleagues from uh, DG Home who are dealing with, uh, with the platform have met with uh, the member states even more frequently than, than a weekly, several times a week, where we then reflect on a different aspects. Also, the Commission has uh, issued uh, a couple of weeks ago the communication on how to support the Ukrainian refugees called Reading, Reading the Europe for, for uh, the, the acceptance of the Ukrainian refugees, in which they refer to like safe house initiatives, in which they refer to access to education for children, which is extremely important. And we have seen that practically all the member states that have children have made sure that they have the access to education, either remotely, in their own language or being included in the in the schools in the local schools with some additional support we have seen that many member states have activated all their ukrainian language students to help children with integration and with with well perception of a normal life if we can put it like that although it's very difficult to have the perception of normal life if your father is fighting war back home or if you don't know what is happening to your grandpa or grandma or your uncles and and nephews and nieces. So it's this complexity that the war, this unfortunate complexity that the war brings and, and these many uh, difficult questions that still are not really answered at a political level. I think that the criticism I mentioned was from a large extent connected to the fact that the crisis response in general and also from humanitarian organizations and was not disability inclusive from the from the beginning, even though many kind of claim that they are disability inclusive and that that's the large part of it. I would just say on that regard, you mentioned the, the COVID crisis and the, the, the emergency response to them and then probably relevant authorities at the national level and the international humanitarian and other agencies should uh, be learning lessons from this and really working uh, to make their actions not just on paper. But of course, most relevant aspect of all this is that the war ends and that is Russia's responsibility since it started it. Thank you for your time and your part in this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it too. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. It went quite quickly, I have to say. And I still feel that I 
haven't told you so many things that I could have <laughs> told you. But thank you very much for inviting me and, and I'm looking forward for our future cooperation. Thank you for listening. I hope you liked this conversation and found it interesting. You can listen to more episodes like this one. Just search for Inclusion Europe Radio on Spotify, Applecast or whatever you listen to your podcast. And of course, subscribe to Inclusion Europe Radio so you don't miss any episodes. Inclusion Europe work is supported by the European Union. If you have any feedback or questions on this episode, please let us know on social media. Stay tuned for the next podcast.